Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high-yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. Andrew, I'm excited to introduce our, uh, have you introduce our next guest, and then I guess um, cover a, a, a pretty uh, a pretty intense topic oh, today. So go ahead. Oh, and buddy! Our guest. <laughs> if, if there's a topic we've covered on these podcasts from uh, man, all the all the guests we've had on from Darren, Allison, Darcy, man, Marty Chilvers, uh, it's uh, this topic is probably going to be way over my head, and but uh, it's it's such relevant information with everything going on that I'm, I'm excited to talk about plant viruses and also RNA interference with uh, Dr. Steve Whittem from Iowa State. Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Thank you for joining us. Um, we start our show, uh, Steve, kind of the same way. Give us your background. Um, tell us a little bit about your education and what you're doing at Iowa State now. Sure. Uh, I'm a uh, faculty member in the plant pathology, entomology, and microbiology department here at Iowa State. Um, I've been here uh, about 23 years uh, since I joined the faculty at the university. Um, I grew up in Southeast Iowa on a farm. Uh, we raised cattle and pigs and corn and soybeans and some alfalfa. And then I did an undergraduate degree at Iowa State in uh, agricultural biochemistry. And then I went on to get a PhD in plant pathology at uh, University of California, Berkeley. I worked nice. uh, for Syngenta for a year, and then I, I got the job at Iowa State, and I've been here ever since. Excellent. Um, so molecular uh, undergrad, the easiest of all <laughs> undergrad degrees, right? The, the yeah. molecular yeah, stuff. Biochemistry <laughs> is a breeze, absolutely. <laughs> Well, we, we start, we start, uh, we like our guests to get an opportunity to know, um, or we like our audience to get an opportunity to know our guests. So tell us, um, what are you most excited about in agriculture today? Hmm. In agriculture. Well, I, I think that we're, you know, technologies are changing very rapidly. Um, it's a really exciting era to, to be in. Mm. Um, and I think the thing that I'm most excited about is probably the advances that have been made in, in gene editing over the last five to, uh, I guess we're going on 10, 10 years now. Uh, yeah. But there's just, you know, uh, the technology's changed so quickly. There's always new technologies being developed. Uh, and I think it just represents a lot of opportunities for the future for you know, sustainable crop production and Im improving uh, the quality of, of the products that um, the farmers grow and, and their utility as well and uses. So I, I love that answer. When Andrew and I were preparing for the podcast today, I actually brought up that I think talking about gene editing, CRISPR technology um, would be uh, would be probably something that we need to find an appropriate guest for and, and focus a topic on. So uh, very in tune with what we're thinking about. Um, Andrew, kick our show off today. Uh, give us a little bit of what we're going to talk about. Yeah. So, you know, we, we usually break up the show into the, kind of the science part and then the management. And, and this one's going to be a little bit different because we're going to cover two topics. So, so we're going to talk about plant viruses 
And then we're also going to talk about RNA interference. And so, you know, I think both those topics, obviously with plant viruses, you know, whether you're in corn, soy, um, citrus, obviously there's just a lot of uh, knowledge uh, out there that I, I think is, it, virology is a, a very hard uh within plant pathology, it's just a hard topic. I mean, I feel like, uh, I, I know about plant, plant pathology, fungi, and even bacteria is hard, but man, viruses are another level. So, you know, I, I figure we'd start th this conversation, Steve. Um, can you, can you tell us, um, how did we first discover RNAi? And, and I, I asked that because I think it's probably one of the more fascinating stories that I, I like to tell when I'm talking about it. Yeah. RNAi, uh, well, at the time it was discovered, Plant scientists didn't call it RNAi. We called we had other names for it, like post-transcriptional gene silencing. Uh, later on, the term RNA silencing came along, and, and it wasn't really until we saw the convergence of research in plants and, and in animals that that the term RNAi became more more widely used. But in you know from the plant perspective, the discovery of RNAi came about um, through through different different avenues. Um, so uh, being a plant virologist, I, I followed most closely the plant virology literature. Yep. And in the late 80s and early 1990s, uh, scientists were, were trying to make, uh, they would do things like they would try to express a, a viral protein in a plant, uh, or they would... Um, they weren't necessarily trying to make resistant plants, but what they would find out is that when they tried to express these genes, the plants were actually resistant to the to the virus, which was completely unexpected. Then there were also other groups working on aspects of plant development or or plant uh, gene regulation or or trying to you know make plants be more purple or something like that. Yeah, uh, and and they found that when they tried to express say certain pigment genes that control pigment in plants like petunia, uh, they found that instead of making more of the pigments, they actually would get back plants that produced white white flowers. So um, all of these experiments, which were seemingly kind of failures. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Where like, we learn oh, the most usually, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I, believe me, we fail a lot. Um, <clears throat> but but yeah, these, these experiments, which on the surface just didn't make any sense at all, like you know, we're putting this gene into a plant and it should be making it more purple and instead we're getting white. So, um, you know, people started wondering, okay, uh, you know, what's what's going on here? We really need to understand what's what's happening. And so as they, as, uh, as different groups started to look at this in more detail, they realized like, yeah, like this happens even if the, even if the RNA we introduce can't produce a protein. So that says, okay, this is happening on the RNA level not at the protein level or DNA level. And, and from there, uh, finally, what, what kind of put us over the edge for really understanding what's, what's happening was a key publication, I think it was in 2009, by a group from the UK, where they showed that um, all these different observations about these different types of post-transcriptional gene silencing and even, uh, even plant responses to viruses they were associated with the um, the buildup of a very small population of RNA molecules, uh, which were uh, they're 25 nucleotides in size. Typically, a messenger RNA is like thousands of you know a thousand nucleotides or or more. But they were finding these really tiny uh, RNAs, which normally in our experiments we don't see them. So they had to do special 
experiments and they found these building up in all the cases where RNAi was occurring. So that kind of led to this this whole um, you know this whole change in direction of research trying to figure out you know what what is it in the plant cell that's that's basically taking these bigger RNA molecules and chopping them up into these small RNA molecules, which essentially silences the yeah. the genes that you're you're interested in, or yeah. or silences a, a virus. So we have a good jumping off point, right? Um, and and it's fascinating. I I can't imagine them sitting there staring at the now white flower, thinking yeah. they were supposed what to have a dark on? purple flower and going, all right, back to the drawing board. But um, I guess let's start with, so we have a good understanding of what of what fungal and bacterial diseases are. Um, what is a plant virus? Yeah, well, uh, plant viruses are super small. Um, so you can't, you cannot see them uh, with the standard light microscope, you have to use something called electron microscope to see them because they're so, so tiny. And we're talking about, we're talking about entities that are, you know, nanometers uh, in, in size. Uh, typically they're, you know, they're very simple. They're extremely simple. Uh, I'm going to call them organisms for now. Uh, <laughs> that... They're extremely uh, <laughs> small organisms um, that are basically protein and nucleic acid. So, uh, they have a protein shell or a protein coat that um, forms a protective shell around the the genome. Uh, and typically, you know, a virus encodes like four to a plant virus codes in like four to ten, ten or maybe fifteen for some of the bigger viruses uh, genes in their in their genome. So they're very small uh, uh, particles. You, you, you bring up one yeah. of the cool. One of the coolest. So when I was when I was in grad school, you know, I think we always I was aware of fungal and bacterial and viral diseases. But one of the coolest things I learned in, in your class and also in Gwen Beatty's bacteriology class is is how small. I don't think I had no idea how small viruses are, and I think it's pretty cool to put in perspective. You know, you think about a fungal spore, right? We can't see that with the naked eye, um, and yeah. then you look at the bacteria, and then you look at viruses. So can, can you, is there any, even any way to put in perspective how much smaller a virus particle is? Because that, that's what's fascinating to me. You, know, you look at electron microscopy and how much, what you need to see a virus, it's, it's insane how much smaller they are compared to a spore. Yeah. I guess to, to put it into perspective, um, like a typical virus that would be infecting a plant cell, um, you know, 100,000 or a million copies of the virus might accumulate in a single cell. Yeah, it's only taking up. That's still only taking up a very small fraction of the volume of that of that cell. So I mean, you could you could probably get I don't know tens of millions of copies of a virus inside of one one cell if they could accumulate to that yeah. high of a level. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. So as we as we talk about viruses, are are there similarities? And and if so, what are they between plant viruses and human viruses? Uh, well, there, yeah. So there, I'll start off by saying there are similarities, but then there's no such thing as a plant virus that infects an yeah, animal. Yep. There's no such thing as a uh, an animal. Oh no, I got to take that. <laughs> I got to take that back. Let me rephrase that. There's no such thing as a plant virus that can infect a human, and there's no such thing as a human virus that can infect a a plant. Um, but there, yeah, there are similarities, like like. You know, I described 
how we have a protein shell and that's protecting the the genome of the virus. Um, so that you know that that also happens with um, with most animal viruses and viruses that infect humans. A lot of human viruses though have a more complicated structure, and and some of them uh, uh, can be larger and encode many more genes than typical typical plant viruses. But uh, plant viruses have to overcome many different problems in able to infect a plant. Uh, so they have the plant viruses encode the machinery they need to be able to replicate in a plant cell and then get out of that plant cell and move to move to another plant cell. Same same thing goes for like a human virus. Human viruses adapted to infect a, a human, and so they need the they need the things that a human cell provides in order to uh, you know facilitate their their infection. So. Um, at the most basic level, there are similarities with how their genomes are organized and how they get packaged into these particles. But beyond that, um, it's very different how they interact with their host cells and uh, achieve their achieve infection. Yeah. How how do they achieve infection? I mean, so how does a plant virus infect a plant? Um, at, at what level do you do you want this? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, let's say so that we can understand. It. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Uh, as as described, virology, man, it's it's a whole other level okay. of of knowledge. But yeah, I, I guess n- knowing me, Steve, in in a way that we oh, get, knowing we, you, okay, that, that helps. <laughs> <laughs> I you know I I would I would say I mean I would say if if we can straddle the fence between. Um, you know, a peek behind the 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 science, but with the practical application of what do we do with that information? You know, because we're we're speaking yeah. primarily to farmers and agronomists trying to support row crop agronomy, right? Okay. So, so that yeah. that's kind of probably the angle. Yeah. So, okay. So, how does a virus infect a plant? All right. So, uh, so first off, the virus has to be delivered to the to the plant, um, and for most viruses, that's probably going to be some kind of a of an insect or other arthropod uh, that's moving the virus from one plant to another. Um, there are also examples of fungi and uh, nematode transmitted viruses and mm. and and viruses that can be transmitted through vegetative propagation and yeah. things like that. But but um, in large part, it's going to be some some kind of insect or something that's moving from one plant to another and. And as they feed, uh, they cause damage to the plant. And then if they're carrying a virus, they can introduce the virus into the plant um, through through that action of, of feeding. So a, a plant virus needs it needs enough damage to to allow it to get into a cell, but not so much damage that that, that cell is going to be um, that cell is not going to be killed by you know whatever's feeding on it. Yeah. Um, so once it's inside the cell, it uncoats. And then the genome is, uh, it expresses its genes and it replicates uh, its genome and it, it uh, makes its st- structural proteins so it can form new, new virus particles. Uh, and those can just stay put in the cell, right? And they can wait for another insect to come along and feed and acquire that, uh, that virus from that infected cell. But um, for plant viruses to be fully successful, they need to move throughout the entire, the entire plant and so uh, to do that, viruses, um, they encode what are called movement proteins. So these movement proteins help them to uh, 
leave the initial cell they were infected and then move to neighboring cells, replicate, move again to more neighboring cells. And ultimately they can um, they can move all throughout the, the plant and establish an infection uh, throughout the uh, entire plant. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, man, you got me thinking of a lot of other questions. So, <laughs> so you know, w- once a virus infects the plant, is, is it those movement proteins that essentially that, that's what's helping it move from, from cell to cell? Yeah, yeah. So all all plant viruses encode some kind of protein that has a so-called movement uh, function. So they may be dedicated movement proteins, or or it could be like a sometimes they need the capsid protein to or the coat protein to help them help them move. But what's yeah. a, what's allowing that virus particle to multiply indoor? Um, sensing that it can multiply. I don't know if that's the right question, but w- what's allowing that? Well, uh, so. Once the once the genome is released into the plant cell, then at that point the virus can use all the things that are available in the cell for gene expression. Um, so so basically, the virus is just a parasite of the of the cell, and it's going to use all the cell's machinery, like its uh, amino acids, its nucleic acids. It's going to use those as building blocks to make new copies of its of itself. Okay. okay. Interesting. Um, when we see uh, symptomology on a plant leaf, for instance, what is causing that symptomology that we see? Boy, uh, that's a really good question. Um, I think some of those questions we're still trying to figure out what what is the molecular basis for for symptoms. But I mean, we we do know that uh, viruses. Uh, they really mess up the physiology of the of the plant. Um, so they are interfering. They sometimes they parasitize the chloroplasts a little bit. Um, so they are interfering with with the function and formations of of chloroplasts, for example. Okay. Um, they're really uh, also manipulating the expression of the genes of the host. So um, they're kind of changing the host's program from what it's normally doing to to supporting the infection of the of the virus sure yeah. so even though they're really small and they're really simple they have multiple ways that they can they can interfere with with the functions of of plant plant cells and so i think you know when we see symptoms what we're seeing is kind of the outcome of all these different ways that viruses are used to manipulate the the plant to make basically make them a good factory for the virus replication yeah that, well, that, that's a great lead in. Yeah, well, that's yeah. perfect. I mean, I was going to say that's a really good question, Sean, because my my question, next question was going to be, what, will a virus kill the plant? And, and obviously, I asked that because, you know, as you described, a virus needs a living host, right? So yeah. you, you would think, you know, is is the end goal for that virus to just feed off of it and multiply, but keep the plant alive? And, and then I would ask, why why would, if you see these yellow symptoms like we typically see with viruses, you would think that you would... The, the virus would want to keep green tissue and keep those cells alive. So then why do we see yellow yellow symptomology? Well, um, the first part of your question is whether the virus will kill the plant. And in in most cases, um, there's few examples where the virus actually kills the kills the plant. Um, so so you're you're right. The virus needs a living host. And so for for most plant viruses, they will generally not not kill the host, but at the same time, they're not they're not necessarily allowing the host to 
to grow at its full potential because of the way they're they're parasitizing. It's not like you're still going to get 300 bushel corn with a, a plant, a field full of virus, right? Right. <laughs> no. no, you cannot expect that. <laughs> yeah. But there are situations in, um, well, in agriculture and just in natural ecosystems where you can have uh, asymptomatic uh, infections. So mm. th- there are situations where you could walk into a, f- a field or, uh, you know, a prairie or something, and you would have no idea that maybe there's plants in that field or, or prairie that are just loaded with with virus. So viruses, I guess, bottom line is that viruses don't always have to cause cause symptoms, but frequently they they do. That's when we really care about them. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We get excited about that. Um, yeah. Transitioning towards the RNAi conversation. Um, what is RNAi interference? What is RNA interference? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, uh, in I guess in a in a class, I would say that RNA interference is a sequence. It's an RNA sequence specific uh, degradation mechanism that is present in um, most eukaryotic or- organisms. So, like animals and plants and and, and fungi uh, also uh, have RNAi systems, um, and and these are systems that are um, they're uh, activated in the presence of double stranded RNA, and uh, once they're activated, they they uh, they degrade that double stranded RNA, and they produce these small what are called small interfering RNAs that uh, have the size that I mentioned earlier about twenty. 21 to 25 nucleotides uh, in length. That's exactly how I would have described it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You took the word right out of my mouth. Well, that's what, that was part of the conversation I had with Sean before we started this. This is, this is such a fascinating topic, but also one of the hard, you know, I've talked about this, especially with some of the new technology we have coming out. I don't think there's a harder topic to describe or talk about. From from yeah, my experience, right. exactly. I mean, how can I talk about RNA I without talking about RNA? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and not, not everyone knows what RNA is, right? Well, so, well, that, that's actually that's what, a, my next question. Is you know, before we dig into how this technology works, you know, one of the I remember when I was learning about it. One of the things that helped me understand when I was learning kind of the molecular, what little molecular stuff I know, but you know, genetics. Thinking about the whole central dogma theory and and how we go from DNA yeah. to RNA. So so can you you know just gene flow, genetic information flow. Right. So can can you just give a, a quick flow, uh, describe the the flow of genetic information? You know how we go from a gene to a protein. Right. So. So yeah, the central dogma in in biology uh, is that um, uh, we have a, a DNA genome uh, that resides in the in the nucleus, right? Uh, and that that DNA genome encodes all the instructions needed to to build the the organism. Uh, but the DNA the DNA itself, um, yeah. I mean, it's it's an oversimplification, but it's essentially it's essentially the li- the library of all, all the genes and or, or the blueprint. You could think of it as the yeah, blueprint. yeah. But you know, a blueprint isn't going to build a building. Um, so you need you need workers and 
in uh, supervisors, <laughs> I guess, too. Absolutely. <laughs> to, uh, to, build, to build the building. Uh, so, so uh, you know, something has to interpret the, the, the blueprint. Uh, and, and so, you know, genes are expressed. Uh, and then, um, and then the expression of genes results in the production of this intermediate called messenger RNA. This is where RNA comes into the central, central dogma. And then, uh, RNAs then can leave the, they leave the genome, they go outside of the nucleus and then they are uh, translated. So they're, they're basically read, uh, and they're translated into a protein. And then the protein is really the, the worker that's going to do all of the business of, of uh, you know, building a cell or building, building an, an organism. So the, the proteins are the enzymes and, and the, you know, the structural proteins and things that are going to do, do all the work. Um, so the, yeah, the messenger RNA is kind of the, the middle, the middleman between the, the blueprint and the, and the, the workers that are going to do the, the building. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm writing so fast trying to take notes <laughs> that then you got to figure out how to keep up. Um, before we start talking about the, the plant portion of RNAi, how is the COVID vaccine related to RNAi? Uh, it's not really related. Um, I, I assume you're referring to like uh, the Pfizer, BioNTech, or the yeah. Moderna yeah. Yeah. vaccines, which are known as RNA, right? They're called RNA vaccines. Uh, so um, basically what, what they're doing is they're producing a messenger RNA, right? So we're skipping the DNA, okay. DNA step. So uh, they're producing a messenger RNA, which encodes for... Uh, a bit of the um, SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. Um, Not the whole thing. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of it. And then, so when you receive the vaccine, this bit of messenger RNA uh, can be taken up into your cells because of the way they deliver it. And um, that messenger RNA will be expressed. It'll be translated into the spike protein so your your body will actually make the spike protein just like it would if a virus was infecting your body. Your body would be, you know, actually making the spike protein produced by the by the virus. Uh, so so it, it really mimics the way that that a viral and if you had a viral infection, it really mimics the way that that spike protein would be made, and then how your immune system would recognize that spike protein, and then. Uh, program your body to make appropriate antibodies to recognize spike protein, uh, which also can recognize then, you know, the viral, actual viral spike protein. So that, that is a, uh, that, that, that uh, vaccine is basically an, a spike protein delivery uh, system, if you, if you will. Hmm. Whereas RNAi is a way to just shut down RNA expression com- completely for whatever gene or, virus that you you target um so so there's there's this rna component but but the outcomes are like completely yeah. completely different yeah. yeah you described the process of going from a gene to a protein so why then is rnai important to plants and viral defense right so um 
actually what what um, lots of researchers have shown that work on plant viruses is that um, the RNAi system that is in plant cells is is it's one of the most important limiting factors to to the ability of a virus to to be able to replicate or or not and and most viruses they encode a protein that is able to shut down or or impede RNA silencing so they can actually you know it's like a the plant says i'm going to degrade your rna the virus says oh no you're not i have this protein <laughs> that's going to that's going to help me avoid you and and so there's this give and take between plants and and viruses and and actually if you take away the silencing suppressor protein from the virus it's no longer able to infect the plant um so so rnai is a super effective uh antiviral system that plants have and the the viruses that are successful in a given plant species have the ability to somehow get around this RNA silencing uh, blockade. Hmm. That's us, man. This I, I'm reminded by how much I like. Actually, I'm reminded how little I know about this stuff, but also how fascinating it is to to talk mm-hmm. about. So you know, pic- picturing a, a virus particle, you know, you have your uh, your insect that's uh, you know transmitting the virus in, mm. in your vector, essentially, right? Um, so h- how does you know, once that virus particle is within the plant, what what is it that allows a plant to sense? Is is it that double stranded RNA, or what is it that allows a plant to sense that virus particle? Oh yeah, good good question. Um, so uh, uh, so it's not the particle itself, um, but it's the process of replication. Hmm. Um, so um, when when a virus replicates. Uh, one of the one of the intermediates of replication is double stranded RNA. So, um, nearly all viral infections will result in the production of double stranded RNA at some point during the as the virus is replicating its genome. And so, the that's what the host is actually recognizing. Um, the RNA silencing system is set up to be initiated uh, when it detects there's RNA or double stranded RNA present in the cell. So once the plant senses that, so so we have the replication process of of the virus, right? And, and yeah. through that replication process, double stranded RNA is produced, and, and that's what the plant's sensing. So right. w- once once the plant senses that that double stranded RNA w- RNA, w- what's the next process? What does that plant do? And, and I'm assuming there's probably maybe resistance and, and non resistance discussion within that. But say, I guess I don't even I don't even know if that's true. But say, how, how does that plant respond once once it senses that double stranded RNA? So, uh, so the the thing that senses it in the plant is an enzyme called dicer. Hmm. Um, so, so dicer uh, it gets its name because um, it dices up RNA, double stranded RNA. So, um, dicer is the is the protein. It's kind of surveying the surveilling the uh, the cell. It's and and when it encounters double stranded RNA that shouldn't be there, it will uh, it will cut it up into small small bits. Um, so that's how it gets its name dicer. It, it dices up the RNA. And and depending on the di- there's different dicers in plants, but um, the ones that are antiviral dicers uh, produce small these small double-stranded RNAs that I mentioned earlier, small interfering RNAs that are like 21 or 22 nucleotides in in length. So very, you know, taking that viral genome then and just cutting it into into small small bits. Yeah. So, 
I, I guess this question. That's only the first. That's only the first uh, level of RNA silencing. There's another. There's another level. <laughs> like, of, 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 of course, there is. <laughs> so, so after that, Dyster enzyme cleave senses that and cleaves it. Yeah. There's another. What's that? What's that next step? So there's a there's another level which you could generically refer to as as slicing. Um, so there's a there's another protein in uh, plant cells called argonaut, and argonaut it can take one of these small pieces of RNA, twenty one or twenty two nucleotides in size, and it can use that like a um, like an address sort of like any any RNA that that matches the RNA that's carried by argonaut will be cut inside the inside the cell. Um, so that's that's a slicer. Um, I feel like so we have ninja. a dicer and we have a slicer. <laughs> this is like a video game that I feel like super smart kids play in their basement. You know, like the rest of us are playing Guitar Hero, and you got to decide like really quick if you slice or dice it. <laughs> it's super rewarding for me to see Andrew with kind of a blank stare on his face, trying to process the information as fast as it's coming at him. Cause I feel like that's me almost every time we record one of these podcasts. So, well, so that, that's a, I mean, that's, a, that's a good kind of, uh, it, it goes into the the next question in my train of thought, you know, you, you kind of mentioned at the beginning how they discovered that this, this whole process and, and you kind of mentioned the petunias, right. Going from trying to, to create a dark purple petunia to yep. getting a, a white petunia because of RNA interference, so how how specific is is this response? You know, you talked about the dicer enzyme that kind of cleaves everything around it once it senses a double double stranded RNA. Is is this an extremely specific response? You know, and I ask that because you know we have technology out there that that we use RNA, and yeah. and there's always the question, just like with any genetically modified organism, is it going to impact other species or other you know whatever, right. whatever it may be? Is is this super? High, is this highly specific? Uh, it is highly specific. So um, and it's programmable. Um, so. So Dicer recognizes the double strand. It just recognizes double-stranded RNA. So, so it could be a viral double-stranded RNA or, or a, you know, a researcher could put in uh, a, a small piece of RNA that might target a plant, plant gene or maybe an insect gene or a fungus gene, right? So, the, the only, so even though the Dicer can target double-strand RNA, once it produces the small RNAs, the slicer can only slice what's produced been produced by by dicer. Okay. So that's that's what really gives the system the sequence specificity. So we can specify what we're what we're feeding dicer and and we can make that extremely specific so that um so that the slicer is only slicing up what we want it to slice. Okay. Uh, so so you can target so you specific can, organisms or speed, you know, insects, whatever it may be, plant, plant viruses. It's, it's exactly. A, yes. You can, you can, you can, uh, engineer it so you can specifically target a, a specific organism. Yeah. And as long as you can find uh, a sequence, you know, depending on what your goal is, uh, um, as long as you can find that specific sequence, you should be able to, to really target only, only what you want to target. Yeah. So, so we're at the final process. We have we have dicer sense the double stranded RNA. The the slicer goes out and is what's actually cleaving that and, and separating those those fragments. Is that correct? Or well, the dicer's cleaving. Dicer's 
but the, but the slicer the slicer is like another it's like another level so this and the slicer you could almost think as as the memory because the slicer is going to hang on to these small these small rnas and so you know if more rna comes into the into the cell and even if it's single stranded rna the the slicer carrying this little bit of of rna can go and, and target you know a single strand okay. rna that matches it or uh you know uh and that's where and that's where sorry that's where you get the specificity okay and i guess it's kind of all coming together in my head now you know again going back to petunias and and even like uh with with the new rootworm technology so if if you're introducing this double stranded rna rna it's mm -hmm. within an organism a plant whatever it may be it's not going to it's not going to only the dicer is not only going to sense and slice up what's introduced, but it's also going to sense and slice up what's already in that organism if it's the same double-stranded RNA. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that makes sense leading to why you would have white plants versus purple because obviously those those genes in, in, that would lead to purple anthocyanins or pigments are already in the plant, right? But if you introduce mm -hmm. more, it's not only going to cleave what's you're introducing, but also what's already in the plant leading to right. white flowers. Right. And that's where the slicer comes in. It's the slicer that's that, um, that natural or endogenous, endogenous gene that's already there. You're basically programming the cell to program slicer to slice that, that gene that's responsible for making the purple collar or the, the RNA, the mRNA from that gene. Yeah. Well, I, I think we're uh, we're wrapping up our final question with with RNA and getting ready to move into the management portion. Um, I, I guess my final question would be, you know, so so we've got to where we're 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 sensing slicing those that double stranded RNA RNA, and then then we have uh, um, so what are we at? Dicer, the dicer enzyme, and then slicer. So what's next? So once you slice those up, what what happens to that? Does does that just float around within the cell, or does that go to the garbage pail of the of the of the <laughs> yeah, plant cell? It becomes an exudate. It essentially goes to the garbage garbage pail. So, um, uh, the yeah, once once a RNA has been chopped in half or whatever, uh, it's no longer has serves a function in in the cell. And so, um, cells are pretty efficient. They will they have enzymes that will break those down and uh, basically re recycle re reuse them. So. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Oh, yep. uh, well, <laughs> very good. Uh, I'm going to have Andrew reteach all of this uh, after we get this done. This would be but... easier with pictures. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, or maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. <laughs> Dr. Whittem, thank you. Um, our, our listeners know that we have, we have broken our show into two parts. And so um, start with the science uh, part one, and we will be back with part two, uh, management of plant viruses and uh, real world implications. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. We love your feedback. Please email us at apennyforyourthoughts at gmail.com. That's a penny, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com. Or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.